today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. U.S. Canada relations are going to be much different. We saw that yesterday with the uh, uh, virtual meeting between President uh, Biden and uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau that went on for about two hours, and various members of their staff, too. Uh, but kicking off the uh, that first bilateral meeting yesterday, uh, the new president, flanked by his vice president, Kamala Harris, and Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, said that Canada and the U.S. are closer than just geography. The United States has no closer friend, no closer friend than Canada. That's why you were my first call as president, my first bilateral meeting, and, of course, my vice president spent some time living up in Montreal for high school. Uh, interesting dynamic here, and, the, and, the, and the, the chemistry, I guess, is going to be a key part in that kind of relationship, too, because obviously the chemistry uh, between uh, the prime minister and the previous president, as Biden refers to him as that other guy, uh, was not so good, and it certainly did have an impact on Canada-U.S. relations. Uh, joining us to talk about all this is uh, Rob Goodman. Uh, Professor Goodman, of course, is with the Department of Politics and Public Administration at Ryerson University. Good to have you with us again, Professor. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me on. Uh, first question, uh, your read on what happened. I mean, I, I try to watch body language and, 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 and intent during these whole things, too. And we, I think, as you and I talked about before, these guys know each other, of course, from Biden's time as vice president, of course. And, and uh, it's not going to be the, the Obama-Trudeau sort of a relationship, but there seems to be, if not a bond, at least a, a mutual respect for each other there. Yeah, you know, it's a bit harder to judge these things in the era of Zoom meetings than it was uh, back in in-person meetings. And there certainly weren't the uh, competitive handshake contests like there were with uh, Trump and Trudeau <laughs> back in uh, 2017. Uh, but but in general, that that's my read on it as well, that this is uh, a friendlier and relaxed relationship. And at least for the moment, uh, for the uh, length of the administration, there's certainly going to be some disagreements on issues of policy. Um, yeah, but I think on a level of interpersonal rapport, uh, you know, it, it seems like this is a more relaxed relationship at the moment. How important is it for the prime minister to have that kind of a relationship? I mean, he's taken a bit of a pummeling in the popularity polls on this side of the border, essentially because of the pandemic and, and the vaccine rollout and things of this nature. Uh, and, and, and there's some concern about that. The, you know, the, the, the opposition parties are jumping up and down on him now because he won't make a commitment to, to condemn China for their actions, their humanitarian actions or inhuman actions. Uh, does he need a friend on the international stage right now? Yeah, well, I would say these things matter, I think, on the margins. Um, I, I think it doesn't hurt to have a, a good uh, rapport with such, uh, the, you know, the leader of such an important ally, um, you know, like the U.S. I also think, you know, the much bigger issue than the interpersonal issue um, are, are the structural issues. Basically, um, where, where the United States and Canada stand uh, relative to one another in economic terms, in defense terms, in population terms, um, you know, all these things uh, are a little more stable and permanent than the personal relationships of the leaders. You know, so, you know, um, despite the fact, I think one instance of this is, you know, despite the fact that in many ways uh, President Trump was an aberration of the way he talked about uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, uh, you know, the way he related to Canada, there are some you know, continuities between the way um, the Trump administration and the Biden administration relate to Canada. You know, one example of this is, I think, a growing protectionist trend that you see in, in, in President Biden. Um, claiming that he's going to take some actions to strengthen the Buy America provisions that, that President Trump was also committed to. So I think, you know, on, on particular issues, uh, if there are places where it could, say, you know, help uh, Prime Minister Trudeau to get some concessions uh, on the margins um, uh, to um, you come up with, with ways in which the U.S. can give a little bit without sacrificing its core interests, I think there's always room for that. It's always nice to have personal relationships that are uh, healthy, and not strained and not you know, based on insults. But I also think the bigger 
issues, um, the bigger structural factors are going to be there regardless of how the president, the prime minister, get along. How, let's talk about Canada-U.S. relationship vis-a-vis China. Uh, I mentioned this earlier in the program, Professor. I, we got the sense, an awful lot of us anyway, in, in watching what was going on with the Huawei situation and, and some of the other situations, that the, the United States, well, basically initiated that whole action by asking Maduro at the Vancouver airport and, and basically kind of, you know, threw Canada under the bus after that and let them, the Canadian government, take all the heat for that and the prime minister, for that matter, for taking the heat because of the, the two Michaels. Uh, that was one of the interesting points of the meeting yesterday, the, the president coming out and say he was going to work hard and uh, the, the classic line that, you know, you can't use humans as bargaining chips. It, it, there was a commitment there that we didn't see from the American administration, at least with the other guy anyway. Yeah, yeah I think that was really well said. You know, the idea that human beings are bargaining chips, I think that's that's true. And I think Biden uh, was right to put it like that. But yeah, I, th- I also think on a matter of uh, you know, keeping the U.S.'s international commitments, I, I think you're right to say that Canada is involved in the situation. Uh, as a result of helping out its ally, as a result of a U.S. initiative uh, that led to the uh, detention of uh, Meng Wanzhou and that led in turn to the um, detention of the two Michaels uh, by China. So I think that uh, it's very much a case in which the U.S., you know, having put Canada somewhat in this situation, uh, really does, I think, have a responsibility uh, to help out its ally in this sense. You know, I'd say it's it's a, a moral responsibility in a sense, but I also think that uh, in the realm of international relations, that doesn't always count for that much. So I think what counts for a little bit more is, is this idea of of credibility and being able to keep its commitments and know that it makes reliable commitments among its allies. So I think what that means is um, other allies are probably watching how the U.S. Uh, navigates the situation uh, because, you know, the U.S. asked Canada to, in a sense, take a hit for it, uh, asked Canada to uh, potentially um, sacrifice some of its international standing or provoke something of a conflict with China uh, to help out the U.S., um, and Canada did so. And I think other allies are now watching to see if the U.S. is going to follow through on its part part of that commitment to see if it has its allies back in this case. You know, I think credibility, uh, being able to be trusted when you make a commitment like that in the absence of any kind of binding restraints, is really the lifeblood of of international politics. And I think that matters more than than the moral question about whether human beings are bargaining chips. I think the issue of credibility is really important here. And I think uh, the U.S. um, has some good reason to follow through on its commitments here, and I, I hope that it does. What, the friendship and relationship, if cordial, if not, and maybe even a little bit better than that, it, it has to be important though for some, in, in addressing some of these other issues. Uh, Keyst, well, the, the Keystone pipeline may actually be a dead issue at this stage, but there's another pipeline, of course, uh, that ends up in Sarnia that runs under Lake Huron, mm-hmm. and, and there's some concern about that, uh, and and you know the buy American policy. But when those discussions do occur, and I think they probably already started, they just didn't do it yesterday in front of the cameras. Uh, the fact that there's at least a foundation of, of respect and friendship there, it makes the discussions a little easier as opposed to, you know, the Donald Trumps uh, who said, you know, that Justin Trudeau was very dishonest and weak uh, when he decided to, to push back against Trump and things of that nature. It makes negotiations that much more difficult, I would think. Right. Yeah, I, I think what's really important for these negotiations is, is some degree of predictability, you know, some idea of understanding how uh, one valley is going to react uh, to certain proposals. And I, I think that uh, despite these you know, continuities I mentioned, I think one big issue about the um, uh, the Trump years was a sense of unpredictability. The sense he never really understood uh, how he was going to react, what was going to provoke him, uh, what was going to set him off. And I think that is, you know, at least at this point in time, not a factor in the relationship. That may it might be a factor in the future. There might be another unpredictable U.S. president uh, four to eight years down the road. But but at this moment in time, uh, I do think um, you know the relationship seems like it's on a, a bit more of an even keel. So I would say that. One instance of this 
um, you know, just again beyond the level of, of personal rapport is this idea that both um, both governments have staked a lot of their credibility on, on issues around climate change and, and uh, energy um, and green energy, for instance. So I think this is an area that, that was uh, highlighted, that was mentioned a number of times in, in the roadmap that came out of the meeting, um, that there's room for real cooperation between uh, both governments on this. And I think it matters that both governments um, have made it an important part of their uh, political brand, in a sense. They want to be seen to be making some measurable commitments um, you know, towards reducing emissions and to following through on those climate targets. Uh, you know, Again, uh, who knows where the U.S. is going to be in the next administration, but at this point in time, that's a point of predictability. Uh, that's a point at which um, the current governments in both countries uh, can say that we have a common objective here. Uh, with Professor Rob Goodman from uh, Ryerson University, if, let me pivot if I could, because uh, yesterday was a very, very busy news day, of course, because of, of this Zoom meeting, uh, the, sad, the incident with, uh, with Tiger Woods later in the afternoon. Uh, mm-hmm. But what I was watching for the first part of the afternoon were, were the confirmation hearings for Merrick Garland, of course, uh, uh, the nominee for the Attorney General's position in the United States in the Biden cabinet. Uh, and it was a rather robust discussion. Uh, I guess a lot of that is, is based on the foundation that there are an awful lot of people that were very dissatisfied with the former AG, of course, that being Bill Barr, who turned out to be Donald Trump's lawyer as opposed to the Attorney General. That was the accusation. I think there's an awful lot of, 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 of evidence to support something like that. And, and that seemed to be the tone. I think he, m- Mr. Garland, or Judge Garland set that up right off the bat, didn't he? He says, I'm, I am not the President's lawyer, I'm the United States lawyer. And that, that seemed to basically say, this is where I'm going, and it's not like the other guy. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. And I would say one of the interesting things about the attorney general position in the U.S. Constitution is it it is really supposed to be an independent position. It's supposed to be um, in charge of things uh, like, say, investigating uh, the president and members of the administration, former members of the administration uh, who might have broken crimes and might be worthy of of indictment or or prosecution. And it's really, really sensitive uh, when these things become politicized. And, you know, Trump... um, in some ways started this with making a locker up we you know, the idea of imprisoning hillary clinton uh, a key theme in his 2016 campaign and in a sense this sort of poisoned the well in the sense that once you had a president calling for political prosecutions of his opponents um you know that leads i think to declining for us across the political spectrum about um if a member of administration were to do something that were actually criminal were actually worthy of prosecution how would you then know that that prosecution was being you know, pursued for um, uh, reasons of the law and not just for reasons of political retaliation? So I think a lot of trust has been eroded there. And I think you know, to the extent that any one person can do something to rebuild that trust, I think it's important that Merrick Garland is uh, talking really openly about his independence for the White House. Uh, it's interesting to point out that in some states, um, uh, not on the federal level, but in some U.S. states, the state attorney general is actually uh, elected separately from uh, you know, the state governor. You know, the idea being that you need, in some real constitutional way, the attorney general to be protected and independent uh, for the source of his or her political power uh, from that state's administration. You know, in the U.S., is not like that. So the attorney general is always going to be a little bit indebted uh, to the president who appoints him or her. You know, but still, um, it's important to strike this tone of independence to make anything the attorney general does uh, extraordinary, extraordinarily uh, as credible as possible. And the other thing I'll say is that Merrick Garland has a lot of experience and a lot of history uh, working specifically on the issue of um, right-wing extremism. That, that's really one of the things in which he made his name for uh, was was uh, the prosecutions that came out of the uh, Oklahoma City bombing mm-hmm. uh, by a, a right-wing terrorist in the 90s. Um, and, and he says that, that dealing with right-wing extremism, like we saw 
on the uh, the attack on the Capitol on uh, January 6th is going to be a major focus of his tenure. Uh, and I think, uh, you, you know, there, he's a really trusted figure, I think, when it comes to specifically taking on right-wing extremism. And I think that uh, uh, in that regard, he's a good choice for the position. Uh, he would have been a great Supreme Court judge, too, but I guess that uh, that ship has sailed. But uh, yeah, I, I'm absolutely right. His, his credibility is fabulous. You know, as they were talking to him about that yesterday, my mind went back to actually Barr's uh, uh, hearing uh, when he was uh, getting the job, and it was then Senator Kamala Harris that was trying to nail him about that, about has the president had any discussions with you about prosecutions. And he, Barr danced around the question. He would not answer it. And she finally gave up on it after asking her three or four different ways. Garland was pretty upfront about that and simply said, no, I have not asked the president and he's been clear that I run the Justice Department, not the president. So uh, the, those lines have been drawn pretty well. But I want to get back, because you mentioned the McVeigh situation, which is where we first heard, I guess, about uh, Judge Garland for the longest time. Uh, and they asked him about the death penalty, and I thought the answer was interesting. Uh, he said he had uh, no regrets at all about Timothy McVeigh getting the death penalty for what happened, but uh, he said that was then, this is now. He seems to have changed his attitude, or at least is open to changing his attitude about the death penalty. Yeah, I think the conversation on the death penalty has, in a sense, changed uh, since the 90s. I think there's a lot more awareness of the way in which, you know, I think, as Judge Garland said, it, it's really haphazardly applied and applied in a way that, that almost everyone agrees uh, has a lot of racial bias to it. You know, the idea that, that people of color are, are way more disproportionately likely uh, to be sentenced to death, especially uh, when the victim um, of whatever crime is not a person of color. So th- there's a lot of ugly uh, racial heritage that is baked into the way the death penalty is enforced in the U.S. And I, I think there are some really difficult and profound uh, moral arguments about whether an ideal functioning society uh, in which you didn't have that racial bias um, would have a death penalty for the worst crimes. Um, I, I'm strictly against it. I think it's it, it's immoral regardless of the situation. But I think the point to remember, and I think uh, Judge Garland mentioned this, is that we're not in an ideal society. We're, we're in a society with, with a deep legacy of racial bias and the way these things are administered and put into place. That means that, that we're not operating in the ideal world in which we, we know that the death penalty is being applied fairly. There, there are years and years of data showing that it absolutely is not. Um, and I think it's interesting that someone who, as you mentioned, secured a death penalty for, uh, um, for uh, one of the worst criminals um, is now a lot more skeptical of it. And I think another thing that provokes some skepticism of it is this uh, rush that uh, Bill Barr and Donald Trump were engaged in uh, to execute um, – uh, a number of criminals on death row as Trump was leaving office. Uh, it was the largest spate of uh, federal uh, executions uh, in a row in quite some time. And I, I think in some respects, this you know, this eagerness to kill as many people as possible on the way out the door, um, it, it just seemed, it struck me as really ghoulish in some regards. Uh, the, the idea that you would expedite the death penalty as the administration was going out of office because, uh, you know, for fear that these people might not be executed uh, if there were a new administration in place. I think, again, that just shows how highly politicized this is, how it's not enforced in any kind of equitable manner. Uh, and, and despite the fact that uh, a number of people died um, and a number of people were executed, I, I don't think that that is going to do any favors for the long-term viability of the death penalty in America. Absolutely. Well, it's interesting and very educational, I think, and instructive to hear uh, Judge Garland's comments on this. Uh, as always, I, Rob, thank you so much for the time. Great talking with you again today. Of course. Thanks so much for having me on again. Take care. Professor Rob Goodman from uh, Ryerson University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.